Welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. Hello, base campers. Hope you're all doing well. As many of you know, I have been a city dweller my whole life, a sophisticated urbanite, as they say. And living in both Seattle and then New York City for 10 years and now back to Seattle to raise our family, I have loved the cities that I've been a part of. The culture, the humanity, the diversity, the human connection and human condition, the art and the food, the street scene, and yes, even the edge, the occasional violence and crime that come across your radar. All of these have been a part of my life, and there seems to be a common sentiment among city dwellers these days. They can't wait to get out. Things are fraying in our great cities, and it is in plain daylight for all of us to see. The violence, the mental health crisis, the crime, the homelessness, the hopelessness. Our cities seem lost, don't they? Can we recover them? The following is a reading of an article by the great writer Naomi Wolf. I will give you resources on where to find her at the end. Naomi is a former liberal writer, best-selling author, and thought leader, and celebrity. She has has famously been a walkaway from the left as the woke Marxist agenda started to alert something in her that something else was going on and perhaps she was being played. I know exactly how she feels. Here I'm acting as simply a voiceover. Speaking Naomi's elegant words, I hope she doesn't mind that I pay tribute to her and her ideas this way. Enjoy. These are the words of Naomi Wolf from her excellent article titled Cities. I'm writing on the morning of my 61st birthday, a phrase that does not trip off the tongue or emerge easily on the keyboard. I'm the only one awake yet. Brian is still asleep, and Loki, his fluffy fur having grown back after his late summer grooming, is snuggled against him, napping too. We're staying in Brooklyn, in a beautiful neighborhood built up between 1900 and 1915, my favorite period of American urban architecture. Here, the texture of the streetscape is mostly intact. Old trees still line sedate red brick tenements and elegant, historically preserved townhomes. The early 20th century was a time of wonderful whimsy in relation to urban development, and you can see the immense hope and imaginativeness in our country at that time, in the very architecture of many of our cities. All around us in this neighborhood, you can still see apartment buildings with castle-like crenellations and crazy coat of arms that are entirely invented, depicted in plaster ovals placed high along the roof lines. You can still see half-timber walls, a notion lifted straight from Elizabethan English architecture, while at the same time, entire blocks look like Edwardian London's Mayfair. All of this wild architectural pastiche surrounds and adorns the businesses, churches, and institutions of a Caribbean community that still seems culturally rich and intact, that feels, at least to me, as if, unlike Manhattan now, it has not been blown apart yet by overdevelopment or crushed by the corporate interests that used the pandemic to destroy many small businesses. For this reasons, and many others, such as the food, which is sublime, by the way, it fills me with happiness to be here. We are being propagandized to believe that human culture does not matter, yet a rich, intact culture around us makes humans stronger, happier, more interesting, and better able to resist oppression. There's a reason that Jane Jacobs' classic 1961 book on urban civic health, titled The Death and Life of Great American Cities, 
has had such a great impact on my thinking. She made the case that walkable cities that are dense, that have public gathering places that allow eyes on the street, the eyes of caring neighbors, that is, not the state, and that mix residential and retail buildings create a culture of neighborliness and civic engagement and thus support and sustain robust, healthy, vibrant civic societies. I came back to Brooklyn upon leaving Manhattan, where I used to live, these days feeling a sense of relief. The overdevelopment in Manhattan that seemed to all have unrolled during the lockdowns when people could not gather to discuss and resist the rezoning plans for their neighborhoods now makes giant swaths of Manhattan look exactly like Dallas. This overdevelopment with its massive, ugly, featureless glass towers has clearly changed how Manhattanites relate to one another. I no longer see the intense energy of chatting or the unexpected wacky exchanges that used to characterize life on the sidewalks in that city. For one thing, Manhattan's real estate profile has changed so dramatically during the lockdowns that it is a city almost entirely of rich people now, whereas until 2020, it was still a city of incredible economic and racial diversity. So that energy that Manhattan used to have until lockdowns and the stealth redevelopment that clearly was part of the lockdown agenda of people with greatly different life experiences and perspective interacting and jostling against one another productively is totally evaporated. For another, the glass and steel megaliths that disorient the visitor along the entire midtown stretch of Hudson Yards that replaces what used to be miles of charming, rayfish waterfront buildings, tiny hand-wrought townhouses and warehouses that dated to Walt Whitman's wanderings along the same stretch of real estate do not lend themselves any longer to crowds gathering peacefully, enjoying a varying cityscape because it no longer varies, or wandering, chatting, or engaging with one another. Indeed, the very profile of the city is unrecognizable. This profile, as seen from Queens or from New Jersey as you approach, a profile that used to be so uplifting and rhythmic and poetic and that inspired so many songs and poems, the visual dance from the Brooklyn Bridge to the seaport to Murray Hill and what used to be called Hell's Kitchen, now rebranded as Hudson Yards, to the pinnacles of the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building, to the skyscrapers of Midtown, to the towers along Central Park and the East Side, and the elegant diminuendo of old-school Harlem. This rhythm, this famous cityscape, has been entirely respected for decades, even with new development. In the recent past, no matter what happened, you never entirely lost the feel of the landscape under those various undulating landmarks. A view of Manhattan from New Jersey in 2018 had the pentimento beneath it of the same view as it was seen from a boat arriving into the harbor in black and white images from 1940. But now you can't see that elegant visual rhythm any longer, whether you arrive from New Jersey side or from Queens. Indeed, as you approach Manhattan now, you can barely tell where you are. Downtown Hong Kong, downtown Shanghai, downtown Albany, the same globalist destruction of landscape and urban features has taken place in London and elsewhere in Europe. But that is another essay. The change in architecture has changed the culture for the worse. Manhattan now is an alienating fancy shopping mall for mile upon mile surmounted by sleek, unmemorable tower blocks no different from those that deface any Midwestern U.S. or global downtown. It is now a place of wealthy anonymity. Paradoxically, as a result, it is a city that is easier to control, propagandize, or destroy. It is easier now to turn a city like Manhattan into a 15-minute city or a quote-unquote smart city or to coordinate off, as I 
witnessed a few days ago with every entrance into the city from the FDR Drive was closed off for miles due to the New York City Marathon, but that could be done again at any time for less benign purposes than it would be to have been in the recent past when Manhattan was rich with low-rise neighborhoods, brownstones, and tenements with a mix of incomes and with crowds on the street talking to one another, exchanging information, and resisting the plans of the elite as the citizens of Manhattan successfully resisted certain plans in the past for decades. As I write, protests have been deployed in our major cities in the West. This, too, is a planned strategy to destroy the freedoms and unity of our Western cities. Brian O'Shea recently pointed out a major finding of his with important primary sourcing, that there are digital platforms which may be indirectly funded by George Soros and CCP-backed entities where anyone, including foreign actors, can coordinate protests in the West remotely. His argument? Anti-Israel protests are being organized with customer relation management, CRM-style apps, and that old CRM software platforms are now repurposed so as to rapidly deploy protesters en masse anywhere in the world by anyone for strategic purposes. BLM? Check. Destroy the cities. Defund the police? Check. Destroy the cities. Abortion rights? Check. Divide society. Now Israel-Palestine? Check. Divide society. Strip us of civil liberties. It is worth noting, I'd add, that under the guise of these protests, which can now be manifested digitally at the press of a button, Western liberties and symbols of Western and national history are being targeted for disruption and violence. The Cenotaph in London, which honors the British war dead, Grand Central Station, the beating heart of Free Assembly in Manhattan, capitalism itself, BlackRock was targeted. I'm not a big fan of BlackRock, but it is Notable that the often violent mass protests, nominally about violence in Gaza, have somehow identified as targets some of the key symbols and institutions of Western history and its economic organization, symbols and institutions that do not organically relate to the conflict in the Middle East. That is not an accident, I would argue. All of this points to a larger globalist pretext for which Brian's discovery is invaluable. We are all being manipulated, and tribal hatreds are the mechanism. I'm not saying that many of the people attending these marches on whatever side they're on, quote-unquote, are not sincere believers. I'm saying, as I often do, that there is also a larger agenda exploiting hatred and tribalism on both, quote-unquote, sides, and that the greater target is and has been for a few years now the free civil societies and the histories of the West. So what do we do? Well, understand what is happening first and not give in to it. Cling to our histories, our cultures, our heritages. There's nothing racist about that if we do not define being American or Dutch or French racially. It's okay to love our countries, our, love our cities, love our cultures and subcultures, and to demand to shape them, to insist on sustainable borders around them, and to demand to protect them. And it's okay to champion the history represented by the Cenotaph in London, to refuse to allow mobs to shut down free assembly at Grand Central Station in New York, to recognize that the plan to, is to create so much violence and civic instability that there can be a justification for crackdowns on our last liberties, that people beg for the quote-unquote safety represented by smart cities, 15-minute quadrants, and now, as rolled out in Europe, digital identities. 
We must also cherish and defend our civil liberties and not fall into the traps laid out for us regarding freedom of speech. Her colleagues censoring Representative Rashida Tayyib, for instance, for publicly defending the use of the phrase, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, unquote, is an act aligned with the First Amendment. But ousting her from Congress, much as you may oppose her words, unless they can, you can make the case that there is a direct call for violence, which is already illegal under the First Amendment laws, is not. Penalizing her for what Representative Rich McCormick calls, quote, promoting false narratives, unquote, definitely is not. Indeed, laws that have been passed at the state level that punish contractors for expressing views critical of the state of Israel or for their engaging in boycotts against Israel are also not aligned with our First Amendment. Paying attention to these distinctions and not getting swept up in an orgy of censorship really matters right now. Making sure that students are not actually threatening one another with shootings and stabbings, as students have been threatened at Cornell, for instance, is in alignment with academic freedom traditions. But ensuring that students lose job offers for peacefully expressing their views supportive of Palestine, or Israel for that matter, or silencing students on campus for views that make other students feel quote-unquote uncomfortable is not in alignment with our free civil society traditions. These moves to suppress speech pose terrible threats to the future of freedom and to our unity as a nation. Don't fall for this trap. Today, it's Israel-Palestine that is weaponized, hyped, violent, surrounded, and censored argument. Tomorrow, if you comply with these calls for weaponizing speech and for punishing students or citizens for their views, it will be your speech or your young adult child's if you or he or she wish to comment on the current administration or on election outcomes or on any issue the globalists do not wish you or your kids to question or address. So, back to loving our free cities, our vibrant neighborhoods, our constitution, back to recommitting to engage in quote-unquote being freedom and quote-unquote being peace at the most local of levels. That is the only way to survive and thrive and effectively to resist. Today I'm going to celebrate my birthday by going for a walk and enjoying the intense chattiness of this part of Brooklyn, shopping for wares at the dollar store and taking loved ones and Loki for a walk in Prospect Park before enjoying a homemade dinner, not by me. Nothing could be better. But this week, I'm also going to celebrate and defend our freedoms and sustain our peaceful civil society by trying myself to, as peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh urges, engage in quote-unquote, being peace. I'm going to do this by worshiping as I did in 2014 during the last siege of the Negev, Gaza, with quote-unquote, the enemy. I'm planning to attend my local Jemaya prayers in my local mosque as a Jewish woman. I was warmly welcomed to many Jemaya prayer services in 2014, and I expect a warm welcome this time too. I encourage others troubled by events in the Middle East or around the world to join me in their local mosques. I encourage synagogues, too, to invite their neighbors in local mosques to join in lighting Shabbat candles and joining for Shabbat prayers. I encourage Jews and Muslims around the world to do this together. It's a long shot, but in my experience, this act is incredibly healing, and it cools the temperatures. It drives down the fear, hatred, fear, and alienations on both quote-unquote sides. Churches join in. This interfaith call to prayer together reveals the call for peace that undergirds all three Abrahamic religions. Right now, interfaith prayer is more powerful in my view and more stabilizing to the unity and freedom of our Western societies than is cross-faith, counter-faith argument, protest, or even legislative action. And Naomi finishes with this. So go enjoy your city today if you live in one. Go pray with exactly the people you're instructed that you're supposed to hate. Go invite them into your own house of worship. 
Go take some action to strengthen your neighborhood, your local culture. Go chat with someone on the street that social media and leaders tell you is unknowable. Make a meal for friends and neighbors. Refuse to be hypnotized. You are thus unmaking your own chains. And remember, they can only enslave us if we let them. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed reading it for you. Uh, to find Naomi Wolf, you can go to Outspoken by Naomi Wolf on Substack. I find her work to be extremely relevant and her words to be very well crafted. Go take a look. Thank you, base campers, and we'll see you around the fire next week. If you find value in our show and wish to show us some love, we are now making that very easy to do. You simply go to www.basecampformen.com and click on Donate Support Basecamp. You'll find an easy way to make either monthly donations for as little as $5 a month, or you can donate just once. We love the monthly donation and hope to build this up over the coming months, but any show of support is greatly appreciated, honestly. Thank you for your support and for helping to keep Basecamp as a resource on your hero's journey. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac and you're listening to Base Camp for Men.